Good morning, church. You can be turning to Matthew 16. This morning we'll be continuing uh, in Matthew's gospel as we have been. Matthew chapter 16. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 21 through 23. Verses 21 through 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. But Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind on God's interest, not on God's interest, but man's. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, as we consider uh, what your son Jesus has said here, as we consider what is going on in this text, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would give us understanding. Father, I ask that as I attempt to preach your word, that you would help me to preach beyond my own ability. I ask, Lord, that you would help me to be unseen and for you to be seen as your word is proclaimed. We ask that you would do as you have promised, that your word would not return void, that it would do its perfect work in each and every heart in the room this morning and those who are watching at home. And Lord, I pray that you would help me to speak these words as though they were the words of God, which they are, with authority and boldness, and that you would uh, have mercy on me as I attempt to preach your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. So today is somewhat of a special day for me uh, as we preach this text. Um, this Sunday is my uh, fifth anniversary here at Barberville. And so it was on this Sunday five years ago um, that I stood in this pulpit for the first time on a Sunday night and preached a trial message where the church um, brought me in as the family pastor here. And man, it's been a five years uh, it's, it's been a good five years. Some, sometimes have been hard, uh, as, as uh, pastoral ministry is. Uh, David uh, played music when he was a shepherd, and he uh, enjoyed time with the Lord when he was a shepherd, and he also fought lions and bears and other things when he was a shepherd, and, and uh, so it still happens today. And so sometimes are, are difficult and sometimes are joyful. A mentor of mine said that every day in ministry is like a wedding and a funeral. There's always something to be heartbroken over and always something to rejoice in and I've found that to be true and uh, I'm, I'm thankful I feel like after five years I'm still learning so much and just getting started and so um, I looked forward that in God's providence the the timing uh, lined up that today was uh, my day to preach and so I'm excited to do that we didn't plan it that way but that's just the way that it worked out so I'm thankful for that the title of the message this morning is The Path to Glory. The Path to Glory. There's some important things that are going on here, some 
some challenging things. And, and like you, I know many of you are like me and you grew up in church and you've probably heard the phrase, get behind me, Satan, a thousand times, maybe even from your parents growing up, if you grew up in a Baptist family like I did. And, uh, and so sometimes we throw this around and, and we don't really get the, uh, the full context of what's going on here. But uh, to give us the context here, if, if you haven't been with us recently, we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew for about a year and a half now, just taking every piece one at a time, uh, how it comes, the way that God wrote it. That's the way that we want to preach it. And um, in the previous text here, we have another really key passage. This, this chapter 16 has a lot of important stuff. Uh, in it. And, and right before this, we see Peter's confession of Jesus, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, God, and Jesus explains here that he's building his church uh, on the apostles and on the, the message that they are bringing, which we now have contained in this word. And uh, as we went a little deeper into our growth groups on Tuesday night, the, then we have time to do on Sunday morning. We really kind of unpacked and talked about uh, Christ being the cornerstone and the apostles being those foundation stones that Jesus laid that the church was going to be built upon and that as Paul says, we are all living stones that are being built into the house of God on top of that foundation that, that, that they laid. As Paul said, uh, he is laying in a foundation and if any man brings to you another foundation than what was laid by the apostles that you should not listen to them. And so... The Apostle Matthew here is writing this, and we are building uh, the church of God, or rather he is building his church even this morning as what we're reading uh, here from the Apostle Matthew. And so that's the context leading up to this. So something's going to change uh, here in the, be- in the beginning of this passage in verse uh, 21. Something changes. And what's changing is, is that Jesus' ministry is transitioning to where now that they have professed him as the Messiah, they have acknowledged you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you'll remember uh, Pastor Chris explained last week that Peter here uh, in this passage was speaking on behalf of the apostles as he often did. So the apostles were in agreement that they recognize now that he was the Messiah of God that had been prophesied in the Old Testament. And now that they have confessed that, Jesus is able to reveal to them the path of glory. How is he going to glorify himself? What is God's purpose in Jesus' ministry? And so there's three things that I want us to look at in this text in verses 21, 22, and 23 this morning. We're going to look at the path clarified in verse 21. We're going to look at the path challenged in verse 22. And we're going to look at the path cleared in verse 23. So let's jump in here. In verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things, from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. So Jesus is, again, he's beginning to clarify what this path is. And so uh, it, you notice at the beginning there it says, from that time. Well, from what time? From the time that the apostles acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah, he began teaching them this. Notice he didn't do that before. This, we're in chapter 16. This is the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus has clearly spoken about his own death. Now, why did he not do that before? We're going to get to that in a second. But first, I want you to notice the context there of Jerusalem. He's explaining he must go to Jerusalem. He can't go to another city. The work that God is accomplishing for him, this this path to glory, can only be reached by going through Jerusalem. Jesus is explaining to them, well, why? Why is Jerusalem such a big deal? Well, you may not know, 
that many scholars believe that, that this, the temple that, that Solomon built and the temple of the Jews, even in Jesus' day there in Jerusalem, was built on Mount Moriah. Now, you might be familiar with Mount Moriah in the Old Testament as the mountain that God told Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac on. And you remember in that story, he told him, I, I want you to take up your son and I want you to sacrifice your only son to me. And you remember in that story, as he went to sacrifice his own son, God provided a substitute. There was a ram caught in the thicket, right? A, a lamb, as it were, that was a substitute for his son. And, and he was able to kill that lamb as a substitute for his son so that his son might be saved. And that because Abraham believed God, it was credited to him as righteousness because he was trusting Hebrews says he was trusting that God would even raise his son from the dead if he, if he required him to kill his son because he so believed in the promise that God made to him that, he, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through his children that he knew there was no way that God would turn back on his word to bless him through his son Isaac even if that meant raising him from the dead. And that that faith is what the entire Jewish faith was built on. It's what our faith is built on because we are saved not by the ethnicity of Abraham, but by the faith of Abraham. That's how we come into the covenant uh, of grace. And so this path to glory has always required a sacrifice being made in Jerusalem, even for Abraham. And so when God instructed them to build the temple, they built the temple in this same place where Abraham went to sacrifice his son as a place where substitutes will be provided for the people of God for thousands of years in the forms of uh, lambs or birds or goats or whatever the various requirements were that God had for sacrifice, he said, this is a place that I have set on the earth where I am willing to accept sacrifices on behalf of my people in order for their sins to be forgiven. And God had established this one place at the temple in Jerusalem for that to be happening. And so as Jesus often did, and the more that we study the Old Testament, we see Jesus is fulfilling uh, the ministry of temple sacrifice. And so, because he is the true sacrifice, the only sacrifice that has ever forgiven sins, you'll remember Hebrews also says that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins, which means no one was ever forgiven in the Old Testament because of an animal sacrifice. Every one of those animals in the Old Testament were ultimately corrupted by sin and could not actually take away sins. So what does that mean? That means the Bible tells us that it was always Christ. It was always the grace that Christ purchased for us at the cross for his people that was applied to his people even before Christ was born. Why? Because the scripture says that he was the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. And so it's always been salvation by grace through faith in Jesus alone. Even if they didn't know that his name was Jesus, they knew since Genesis 3 that there was a promise that the seed of the woman was going to crush the seed of the serpent. And so here in the city of sacrifice in Jerusalem, Jesus must go there and he must suffer and die. This is part of the path to glory. The only way for the people of God to be forgiven of their sins is for a sacrifice to be made in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah where God had established it from the beginning and that it's always been about the true sacrifice of the Lamb of God, not the Lamb of men that, the, that men would raise. The second part that we see here that he's clarifying is, is that this is not only the city of sacrifice that he has to go to, but there's a sentence of suffering that's happening here. So again, this is the first time that Jesus reveals his death in the Gospel of Matthew, and the disciples had a hard time understanding this. Well, why was it so hard to understand? Well, 
the the Messiah that they understood was Messiah ben David, the son of David. Okay, and you'll remember even when he does his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, it's the children who are crying out Hosanna to the son of David. Right, they're recognizing that title, son of David, was a title for the Messiah. They were recognizing him as God's Messiah, as the Savior of his people. But as we've talked many times in the Gospel of Matthew, you remember the reason why Matthew emphasizes this so much is because he's writing to a Jewish audience. So the Jewish reader that's reading his gospel has a certain picture in their mind of what the Messiah is. And Jesus is pointing out clearly here that what God is doing, the, the path to glory for the Messiah is different than the way that you have understood it. And the reason why it's different is because the path to glory is the Messiah passing through suffering into glory. Not uh, His victory is not an earthly victory. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. One of the reasons why after this time, every time he speaks about being the Messiah, he's telling them, be quiet, don't, don't tell everybody this. Why is he saying that? Well, a couple practical reasons. For one, he doesn't want them to cause an uprising because when that happened in Rome, they just went in and killed everybody until there wasn't an uprising anymore. That was how they dealt with it. So it wouldn't do him really good to build his church on, on uh, people that were all dead. Um, so they needed to stay alive in order for him to do that. But then also, uh, part of the reason why uh, they had this understanding is, is this is the son of David. And in the same way that David came in as the strong warrior king, right, that defeated the Philistines, that defeated Goliath, that led them into victory, that set up this great kingdom to where his son Solomon would come in and build this glorious temple for God, that he, he was just the chief king of the Israelites, that when they thought about the perfect king, King David was was the man, right, the man after God's own heart, and that God promised that through a son of David, through the line of David, that there would always be a king in his line, and that ultimately the king of kings, the Messiah, would come as a son of David. So they had this, this picture of, well, in the same way that the Philistines oppressed us, and, De- and David came as God's anointed one, which is what Messiah means, David was anointed by the prophet and recognized as king, and he came in and slayed Goliath, drove out the Philistines and established God's kingdom here on the earth in Israel that, that the son of David will do the same thing, that he's going to come in and he's going to defeat the Roman Empire and he's going to drive them out and he's going to establish a new uh, kingdom on earth that, uh, that God is going to raise and have his people once again on the earth. So the idea of a Messiah of the son of David suffering and being killed is the complete opposite of what they had in their mind, which explains to us why Jesus waited until they confessed him as as Messiah to explain this path to glory. Because if Jesus would have come to them two chapters earlier and said exactly what he says here, that he must go to Jerusalem, that he must suffer at the hands of the Jewish leadership and then be killed, they, they probably would have left. Because they would have, there's no way you could be the Messiah and do that. The Messiah, the Messiah can't die. He's supposed to be victorious. That's the whole point of him being the Messiah. So what Messiah are you? What kind of Messiah are you that is not able to overthrow Rome or that does not have the power to lead uh, your people into victory the same way that they did in the days of old? What kind of Messiah could you possibly be? And how could suffering be the way in which you achieve your victory? This is impossible for man to do. This was their understanding. And so once they had confessed him as Messiah, once he had established himself through his miracles and his teaching and the fulfillment of prophecy, and they said, you are the Christ, the Son of God, now that you know who I am, I'm going to tell you what the plan is 
because you have to accept it because now you have testified with your lips that I am the Messiah. So you have to understand what this means now, which they could not have done before. The other thing you'll notice here, it mentions three categories of leaders. It talks about uh, that he's going to suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. Now, we've heard about chief priests and scribes. This is the first time that it mentions the elders. Well, who is that? These were like local uh, tribal elders in towns. So some towns were so small, they didn't have necessarily a synagogue or something like that. They would have to travel uh, to a closer location. Or, for instance, if they were closer to Jerusalem, it's much easier to just travel to the temple if you can than to try to meet in a, in a smaller localized place. But they still had local elders that, that uh, may not have been priests that were doing priestly ministry in the temple, but they were spiritual leaders in the community. And so what Jesus is saying is, is there's chief priests like Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin that are going to be persecuting him. There are scribes, which uh, most of them were Sadducees that are going to be persecuting him, so Pharisees and Sadducees, and even the local elders, even these guys that, that are just the local teachers of Torah and doing these kind of things in the local communities, even they're going to be against him, that he's going to suffer many things at all of their hands. Notice that he's, he, he makes a distinction here in verse 21. He must suffer many things from them and be killed. So it's not one or the other. And it's interesting that he points this out because it's not enough for Jesus to be killed. It wasn't enough for someone to come up in the street and stab him or assassinate him. It wasn't enough for that. Suffering was required as part of this path to glory for him. So he's clarifying for them that it's not enough for me to go and die. That wouldn't have been hard for him to do. The Jews wanted to do that anyways. They probably had their own ways that they could go about making that happen if they wanted to. But it wasn't enough for him to die. He must suffer many things and then die. The last thing that we see uh, that he's clarifying here is the symbol of success. Look at his symbol of success there. He has to be raised up on the third day. So why does he have to be raised up on the third day? Well, because... The resurrection is the authenticator of his ministry. Anybody can get up here. I can, I can stand up here right now and teach that I can die for the forgiveness of your sins. But I have no way of proving that. I will die and you will never see me or hear from me again. And you can put your hope and trust in me, but you won't have any assurance that anything that I said is true until you die. And then it will be too late. We don't have that with Jesus this morning because the symbol of his success is the resurrection that authenticates that everything that he said is true. When Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down freely and I can take it up again, he proved that that was true. And if he can do that for himself, he can do it for you too. This is the hope that we have in the resurrection from the dead, that when Jesus returns, we will be raised again uh, in glorified bodies and dwell with him forever. Now that sounds like a crazy claim to make if it was from somebody who you could go visit their gravesite right now. But if he himself rose from the dead, I'm going to take his word for it when he tells me that he can raise me from the dead because he's proven that he has the power to do it. Jesus does not allow his disciples to have faith in him as, as Lord, but not as a suffering servant. So a Christian can't deny uh, the suffering and death of Jesus on the cross. This, this, is, this is a critical thing. There are some who would say, well, I'm a Christian, but I think you know, Jesus, he got hurt really bad. And when they took him down off the cross, you know, and they put him in the tomb, like he got a little bit better, you know, I don't really know how that's possible considering the way the Bible describes how he died, but some people would say that. 
Or they would say, you know, when they took him off the cross, there were doctors and things that helped, you know, restore him. Or, or maybe he had an identical twin, and it was, it was Jesus that died, but his identical twin was there. And so then they, the disciples staged him as the one that was raised from the dead, and that's what everybody believed. You can't be a Christian and believe any of that stuff. If you do not believe that Jesus died physically 100% dead on the cross for sins and was raised bodily in his body, not spiritually raised in the hearts of his disciples, as some liberal theologians would say, if you do not believe that Jesus is in a physical body right now at the right hand of the Father, you are not a Christian. If you don't believe that, and you have no hope. Paul says if there is no resurrection, then we have no hope whatsoever. We're still in our sins, and we will die in our sins and stand condemned before God. And so this is important that he's explaining to them is that he, he has to suffer and die. It has to be at Jerusalem. Why? Because he has to be raised. This is part of the path, the glory that he's on. So he is clarifying this path for them. We have to be honest with people in evangelism and not promise great things in this life. If you've been in church any amount of time, you've been in a service where you've heard an altar call where somebody said, come to Jesus and your marriage is going to get better, or is your heart really heavy right now and you're feeling really bad and, and you just need some encouragement, or, or maybe you're depressed, you just, you just need to come to Jesus and all that's going to get better and that's going to fix everything. That's a lie. It's a lie. Jesus, if the perfect Son of God had to go through suffering in order to be glorified, what makes us think that we get a free pass? And by the way, this is an American idea. This isn't all over the world. You can ask people in any country where Christianity is illegal if they think that being a Christian is a real easy walk of life, and they'll probably laugh at you. But somehow in America, we think that uh, coming to Christ is just going to make everything great in my life, and I'm never going to have any problems, and I'm going to have everything that I want. That's a lie. So here's the, here's the principle here that Jesus is showing us as he's clarifying his own path. You cannot remain comfortable and safe while pursuing righteousness. Have you ever thought about this? We say as Christians that we want to grow in holiness, that we, we want to be more like Christ. Well, guess what? The path to glory for Jesus in suffering is the same path for us. And somehow we've, we've been told this lie our whole lives that we can be solid biblical Christians who are honoring the Lord, who are full of the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit, who are doing the work of Christ, who are expanding his kingdom, and we can do all of that without suffering. We've bought into this lie that we can do that. And it's a lie. The apostles didn't do it. People in church history didn't do it. The martyrs didn't do it. People in the persecuted church today don't do it. God's kingdom does not grow without suffering. And we've bought into this lie uh, even even in our even in our community, where we can be safe and happy and have everything that we need, and God will bless us and grow His kingdom, and it doesn't cost us anything, and we only receive blessing from God. We never receive hardship from God, and yet that's never happened in history. And we wonder. Yeah, uh, this is the reason why, in some ways, COVID was a blessing last year, is because it was shaking the foundations of the American church of like, hey. If you're scared to do what God says because of a virus, you'll be scared under an oppressive government. You'll be scared uh, under threat of death from Muslims in a Muslim country. You'll be scared under anything else if you're willing to so easily forsake being with the people of God, participating in the means of grace, doing the work of evangelism. If you're so easily willing to lay those things down and forgive, for, forget those things, 
and, and leave those things aside, you'll, you'll, you will never last when God really wants to do something because he's going to do it through hardship. There are churches that are closed today after a year that should be because they were preaching a comfortable gospel. I hope every preacher on TV that says, if you sow a seed into my ministry, God's going to bless you tenfold. I hope every one of their bank accounts dries up. I hope God curses their ministry. And he already has because the scripture says that they've already received their reward. And guess what? All that money that they've taken from widows and poor people and everybody else is not going to do them any good when they stand before the Lord. It's going to heap condemnation on themselves. And we have to be careful that we don't think that we're better than them because we may not be on TV preaching a prosperity gospel, but the way that we live may indicate that that's what we actually believe because we're not sacrificing things for God because we're not willing to endure suffering and hardship for his name. You cannot remain comfortable and safe while pursuing righteousness. C.S. Lewis said it this way. This is one of my favorite quotes from him. He says, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. He was honest about it. I had a friend. uh, Her name was Z. We'll call her Z. I had a friend and... Uh, she was very open at work about being a believer in Jesus and very involved in her church, and uh, her, her family life seemed really good. She was helping other people. She's a very positive person. And I would always ask her, how was church on Sunday? Tell me, tell me about it. You know, what, what happened? And the answer was, this, man, the music was just, it was really awesome. Really, really built me up. And, you know, my friends were there, and we had a really great time. And, and the message just really encouraged me that I just need to believe God for more in my life and that I just, I just need to be declaring and decreeing the great things that he's going to do in my life and that I need to be uh, trusting in him and all of his blessings and promises, right? This is what she was, she was always uh, coming out with. Until suffering came into her life. And when suffering came into her life, she basically cursed God with her life. Her marriage fell apart. She got cancer. Uh, somebody uh, vandalized her car at work one day. Uh, her kids just went off the deep end. And guess what? Guess what, her, guess what she didn't get at church? She didn't get a theology of suffering. She got a theology of prosperity. And so you know what she did? She walked away from Christ. Now, she never had him to begin with because the Christ that she had was made in, made in her own image, a Christ that always wanted to bless her, always wanted to tell her what she wanted to hear, always, always wanted to build things up. It wasn't the one that we read about that said, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die and be raised. That's not the Jesus that she was following. And there's a lot of churches out there that are preaching that today, and that's a false gospel. You have to have a theology of suffering. If there's anything that you walk away from this morning, you need a theology of suffering. You need to recognize that suffering is part of God's plan for your life. I know a lot of us are. I know we have a lot of different things going on in our lives, a lot of difficulties, a lot of different kinds of difficulties and challenges. But guess what? You will never be useful to God. You will never do anything for God if you don't suffer in this life. This is a sinful world. There's no way around it. If you want to be righteous, if you want to grow in Christ, if you want God to give you a testimony for his glory, and if you want to follow your own path to glory the way that the Messiah did, you have to follow it the way that he did and endure the suffering that you're in. The second thing, we saw the path clarify. The second thing I want you to see is the path challenge. Look at verse 22 there. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. There's strong words here. 
So there's a sharp correction that he is giving to Jesus here. Can, I, can you imagine? Can you, can you imagine? I mean, none, we, we all say that we wouldn't do this. I mean, I don't know. We, we think we're better than they were. I don't know what was going through Peter's mind, but I'm thinking if there's one person that I don't want to offend, it would probably be the person that's in charge of my salvation. But, but Jesus has, or, uh, Peter has a sharp correction for Jesus here. So it's interesting when you look at, uh, at the grammar in the original language here, it, it, the idea is that Peter was continuing to make these statements to Jesus, which means that Matthew is just giving us one conversation here of many. Because you'll notice back in verse 21, from that time he began to show, which means he didn't just say this one time. So we're not looking chronologically as five minutes after Peter confessed Jesus, then this conversation happened. What he's saying is, is from that time, on a regular basis, as Jesus was talking to the disciples, he's like, guys, you need to understand we're on our way to Jerusalem. Here's what's going to happen in Jerusalem. And over and over again, Peter is pulling him to the side and saying, uh, Jesus, you, it doesn't have to be like this. You don't, ha- you don't have to do that. This is a suicide mission. Why, why, why would you go and do this? You can clearly raise up an army. Everybody's willing to follow you. You can bring God's kingdom to earth here right now. And, and this is the way that he's trying to, to do it. And so it shows Peter's love for Jesus and his ignorance regarding Jesus' deity. So as his friend, any of us, if we had a friend or a loved one, you know, you, you think, about, think, think about somebody, uh, maybe you have a family member or a loved one that has been in the military or is in the military, and they're going on that mission, and you know that mission might cost them everything for them to go out on that mission. And it might also be the, the one battle that can turn the tide of the war. You think about some of these, some of these classic battles where just, they're not even getting off the boat and they're getting killed, and yet it was necessary in order to overcome evil. It was a necessary path, and as faithful soldiers, they were willing to step into just an ocean of bullets in, in order to get one step closer so that if somebody was behind them, they could take the bullet for that guy, and he would take the bullet for that guy, and they would take the bullet for that guy until somebody got on that beach and did what they needed to do. And we lost thousands and thousands of people doing that. And you think about that. Now, who among them would not be the one in the back of the boat of saying, hold on, isn't there a better way that we can do this? Don't do this. You're never going to make it. I love you. I don't want to see you die right in front of me. We don't want that for any of our friends. And this is the sentiment that Peter has here of like, Lord, I've, I've followed you. I will lay down my life for you right now, as he said. I'll take the bullet for you. You don't have to do this. I'll go to the cross. And so part of it is his love for Jesus that we see that any of us would have. How many of us, if, Jesus, if we were in that time, or if Jesus was here today and explained this plan to us, would we say, well, there's got to be another way? Right? There has to be a way other than suffering. Suffering can't be the way. Uh, there's always a way out, right? There's always a way for us to not suffer. That's the way that we think. So he has a sharp correction from Peter to Jesus. But we also see that there's a, a side conversation here. He's, he's taking him aside, right? He's not doing this in front of everybody. He's not trying to embarrass Jesus. He's, as a friend, taking him to the side and saying this. So when it says, uh, God forbid it, Lord, in your translation, uh, the, a literal way to translate it and the way that we would use it here in the South is, Lord, have mercy. You ever heard somebody say that? Lord, have mercy, you know? Uh, that's essentially what he's saying is, is have mercy on yourself. That's literally what it means. Have mercy on yourself. You don't have to do this, Jesus. You're, you're the son of the living God. I know that you are. Surely the son of the living God doesn't have to, to go and die. Uh, if you're talking about the resurrection of the dead, if anybody should not have to die, it should be you, right? That makes sense. 
And so the potential that Peter even has in this relationship to rebuke Jesus shows something about the intimacy of their friendship, right? Jesus wasn't this teacher that was far off. He was at arm's, arm's length. How many of us have been to a conference or something and you hear a speaker and you're like, man, that really, that really spoke to my soul. But you know you're never going to be able to shake that person's hand. You're not going to be able to walk to them. They are, they are far off. They're separated from you, right? This is not the relationship that Jesus had with his disciples. And it shows us this here because Peter actually had enough of a relationship with Jesus that when he grabbed his arm and pulled him over to the side, Jesus actually came over and listened, right? When you think about what does it mean that, that we're a, a friend of God, uh, it should give you some joy that when you pray, that when you come to him with your request, that he turns aside to you too as a friend and wants to hear what you have to say. Hopefully we'll say something better than Peter did though. Peter could only see how the suffering of Jesus would ruin his cause, not how it could make it a success. So if Peter thought that Jesus going to the cross and dying and being resurrected uh, was the, the best way in order for Jesus to accomplish this ministry, then he would have advocated for that. But that's not what he did. And so he was thinking that he knew better than Jesus about how to get this done. Well, if I was the Messiah, here's what I would do. And obviously, Jesus is not pleased with that. The other thing that they're trying to get in their mind is, if you think about it, every other uh, example in the scriptures of resurrection in the Old Testament, New Testament so far, is someone raising another person from the dead. You ever think about that? It's always a prophet or Jesus or somebody else. People don't just raise from the dead on their own. So Peter's thinking in his mind, okay, if you go and you're killed and you're going to be raised, who's going to raise you? There are no other prophets. You are the Messiah that's raising everyone else. Who is the man that's going to raise you from the dead, Jesus? This is a question that would have been in his mind. Of course, we know that it was his, it was his own father. It was God himself who raised him from the dead. But Peter didn't understand this because the only examples that they had in the Scriptures were of men raising other men through the power of the Holy Spirit. So he didn't understand how, how is it that Jesus could even be resurrected. There was no one else holier to resurrect him. How often do we act like Peter and we, we resist and correct the glorious path that God has revealed to us for our lives? Have you ever known for sure you had, you had clarity that God wanted you to do something and you just didn't want to? Or, or, or you thought, okay, this is the doors that he's opened up for me to get there, but I think I could probably do it this way over here and it would work just as good. How many times do we do that in our own lives? Uh, you know, we get some kind of sickness or we get a job that we hate or something goes, doesn't go the way that we want to. And the way that we act is that we assume that God is asleep behind the wheel. That's the way that we act. Is, you know, well, th this situation didn't work out the way I wanted to or, or uh, this thing didn't happen the way that I wanted. Or, you know, God did it this way, but I probably would have done it differently as though God doesn't know what he's doing, as, as though he's just sitting nervously up in heaven, twiddling his thumbs and wondering like, oh, how am I going to get him out of this one? And we live that way as though he's not going to be the sovereign Lord that we've read about in Scripture that brought, brought about all of these things. I mean, there's, there's so many providential details in Scripture that could not have come together by accident. And we know this from reading it, but when it happens in our own lives, when you're on the way to work and you get that flat tire on the way to work and you're going to be late for work and your start, mind starts going down this road of like, oh, no, I'm going to be late for work. 
then I'm going to get rode up because I'm late, and I'm probably going to get fired, and then me and my family are going to be homeless because I'm not going to have a job. Maybe I'm the only one that's ever gone that way, but you can ask my wife. It's real easy for me to kind of like track it out like that. Something like that happens as though God is just like, oops, oh no, the tire broke. That doesn't happen to him. There is a, there is a purpose and a reason. Okay, if a, as we read earlier in Matthew, if a bird can't fall from the sky unless God says, do you really think your tires are going to go flat by accident? Or the person that you run into at the store is an accident? Or the person who moves into your neighborhood is an accident? None of those, none of those things are accidents. And yet, Peter is resisting the clear path that Jesus has revealed. He's saying, you must be making a mistake, Jesus. I, I, know that, I know that you're the Son of God. I know that you speak to the Father. I know that he's telling you this, but... Has he considered these other options? This is not the way that we should be treating a sovereign, holy God who has orchestrated all things according to the counsel of his own will. So apart from Christ, struggling and suffering in this life are the only things that can give us the strength to bear up the glory of God in our lives. The word for glory is the idea of weight. It pleased God to crush his son at the cross. What is he crushing with? The weight of his glory. As, as, as sin came onto Christ, he was crushed underneath the weight of God's glory on the cross. He suffered. When we don't give God the glory that he's due in our lives, he places it into our lives through, through suffering oftentimes. And through that suffering, the only way that we can bear up underneath it is, is, by, is by suffering. So, uh, think about it this way. I, I'm the kind of person, is anybody else like me? When I get groceries and things out of the car, I want to do one trip. Is anybody else like that? Like, I will, like, temporarily hurt myself to carry enough grocery bags to not have to walk back out to the car. I've, I've done this many times, okay? But with eight people in my family, I don't have enough arms to carry all the groceries. So little ones have to come and help. Now, if my little ones come up and I've got, you know, a, a five, ten pound weight thing of groceries, I'm not going to give that to the three-year-old. I'm going to give it to an older one. It's, it's a different weight that I'm giving to them. Well, why am I doing that? Because they can handle it. They can handle the weight and the pressure of what I'm giving them to be able to successfully carry that and finish out the mission that I've given them to go put it on the kitchen table. Now, how does a three-year-old learn how to carry the things that a ten-year-old does? Well, they have to suffer by straining their muscles. This is how your muscles get stronger, right? You have to tear them. And as you tear them and they heal, they become stronger and stronger and get larger so that you're able to carry more weight. If you want to see the glory of God in your life, suffer. That's the only way that it works. When you pray to God and you say, God, I want you to make me like Jesus, just be ready for it. Because he was giving you the little piece of groceries and he's, and he's not going to dump it all on you, but he's going to give you a little bit more and a little bit more. And here, carry this, carry this. And if you want to move up in the kingdom, if you want to be able to help him more, if you want to do more for God, if you want to see him working in your life, if you want to see more prayers answered, the only way that that works is you take on more and more of his glory, the weight of his glory you take on into, into, his life, into your life. And the way that that happens is through suffering. This is the reason why you can look around in the church like I do now and I see different ages and different degrees of glory and it's not based on age. You would think the older person who's lived longer has 
more of the glory of God working in their life than a young person. And it's not true. Do you know what the difference is? As a pastor, I can see the difference between those who are carrying a greater degree of glory than those who aren't is, is directly related to the amount of suffering they've had in their life. If you're younger in here and you've suffered more than the older person, you're glorifying God more in your life than the other person. Now, it's not a contest necessarily between each other, but it is one of those things If this is the reason why some— you, Have you ever met a young person, like even a teenager, and you hear the wisdom that comes out of their mouth, and you're like, man— how did this person get this wisdom from God? And then you meet somebody who sat in church for like 50 years and they know nothing about God and might not even be saved. A lot of that has to do with the suffering because guess what? Suffering also weeds out false converts. They're, they're like, mm, I'm out. You know, when Jesus starts talking about suffering, everybody that's following him is like, we didn't sign up for this, Jesus. This is not what, we, what we're doing. James says it this way, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If you want to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, there's, then embrace the trials that come into your life. Instead of trying to remove that, say, God, give me the strength to endure it, not to avoid it. The last thing I want you to see is the path cleared. Look at verse 23 there. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. So we see Satan manifested here. Uh, some scholars would say either Satan was putting the words kind of into Peter's mouth or suggesting to him to say this to Jesus. Others would just connect it to the passage that Pastor Wesley read at the beginning where Jesus basically make, or Satan makes the same argument to Jesus in the temptation, right? And the argument was, there are ways for you to build your kingdom without suffering. All you have to perform this miracle, Jesus, and everybody will follow you and you can build your earthly kingdom. Turn these stones into bread. Uh, if, if you cast yourself off the temple and the angels come and catch you, everyone will know that you're Messiah and they'll follow you and you can build your kingdom on this earth and you won't even have to strike your foot against a stone. If you bow down to me, I'll give you all the nations of the world that belong to me. You won't have to go to the cross. You won't have to suffer. This was the temptation for Jesus is, there is a, I can give you a path to glory that doesn't include suffering. This is the temptation. And then when Peter comes to him and rebukes him and says, no, this, this can't be, you can't do this, He's saying, I can give you a path to glory that will not include you having to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. And so Jesus does the same thing to Peter that he does to Satan. He rebukes him. Why? Because he knows that he has a clear path. He knows that there there is an economy of glory, and the only way to receive glory is through suffering. And the glory that is required to purchase the people of God requires the perfect and complete sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Anything less is not satisfactory to God. God will not accept anything less than that. So people today who have a clear path, uh, they can recognize the voice of Satan even if it comes from a friend, the same way that Jesus did. And and why? His path was clear because he understood the role of suffering and God's purpose in his life. Uh, This is the reason why uh, suicide is a temptation, right? What is the temptation? There is a path for you to be glorified in heaven for the believer, if you commit suicide, that will not involve the suffering that you're dealing with in this life. That's the temptation, right? And Jesus says, rebuke that. Everything that you have in your life is God using that to glorify himself, to to put the weight of his glory on you so that you become a trophy of his grace and show his, his glory throughout the world. So you can predict the devil's schemes in your own life because they exchange comfort and peace with the world for weak evangelism and inconsistent use of the means of grace. So what does that mean? What that means is the devil knows that he can't take your salvation away. It's secure in Christ. 
Jesus will never leave his bride. His, it is paid in full, as Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. He knows that he can't take that away. So what he can do is, is take your backbone away and, and make you essentially worthless to God, even though you're one of his. And how does he do that? He does it through these schemes in your life of saying, you can have some comfort, you can have some peace in this life, you can get along with everybody. You know, those coworkers or whatever that you know, ask you what you believe about something and you don't really tell them the whole truth because you're afraid that they might get offended or you might get fired. You can have peace with them. That's okay. All you have to do is just compromise a little bit on what God's word says. Or when uh, the government or somebody else you know, commands you to do something regarding your worship, and you know that God, God's word speaks otherwise. You're like, well, we can, ha- we, can, we can make peace here. We can find some kind of middle ground here and everything will be okay. We just have to compromise a little bit. Or the inconsistent use of the means of grace, right? I, how many times have all of us heard when you talk to somebody, well, I can worship Jesus in the bass boat. Okay, you ever met a spiritually mature person that does that? You ever met somebody who's doing anything uh, really, really powerful for God in their life, has a huge evangelistic ministry that spends every Sunday out in the bass boat? No. Or, or whatever it is that they're doing, whatever their thing is that they're doing, I'm really busy. Uh, do you, do you want to see, see real blessing in your life? Go get a job on Sunday. Satan will bless that. You will make so much money. You'll have every material thing you want. You'll have peace with the world. You'll have peace in your marriage. You'll have everything that you want. And all you have to do is work yourself to death at the expense of the means of grace and say, you know what? It's not worth me setting aside an hour to come to the Lord's table on Sunday or to hear the preaching of the word of God or to pray and worship him. I can sing in my car. I can watch church online. I can do all these kind of things. And that's just as good, isn't it? Did God really say, in other words, that we have to gather together, that we have to have communion with one another, that we have to do these things? Does that sound familiar? Did God really say that we have to do it this way? This has been the lie from the very beginning. And this is, the, this is exactly what he's doing to Jesus. Did God really say that you have to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die? Is that really the way that we have to do this? Is there not a better way to do it? And we see sovereignty misplaced here. Because the word there where he says you're not setting your mind on God's interest, we don't have a good English word for that, but the closest that we can get is a worldview. In other words, you are not seeing the world the way that God sees it. You're seeing the world the way that man sees it. And the way that man sees it is suffering is bad. Nothing good comes out of suffering except more suffering or death. Nothing good can come out of suffering. And yet what God is saying is in his sovereign plan throughout history, suffering is actually the only way that anything ever gets better. It's the complete opposite of man's worldview. And so Jesus is telling him here, listen, uh, I'm not running away from suffering because you will never be saved. The glory of God will never work on this earth. He will never work in my ministry. You will never be saved and bring glory to his name if I don't go suffer and die. There's only one way uh, in order for us to be saved, and it's by the suffering and the death of Christ. Peter was leaning on his own understanding and not on God's. So how do we today become a stumbling block to God's purposes in our lives? Well, we do it by insisting on our own way. When you look at a lot of the churches that shriveled up and died last year because it was all based on entertainment and all of a sudden nobody's coming anymore and they don't have the money for the lights and the bands and the cool backgrounds and the, uh, all the other stuff, okay, why is God not blessing that? Well, because they're insisting on their own way of, well, God doesn't say that we have to do things a certain way. I mean, even though he killed a lot of people for it in the Bible, I mean, other than that, 
like we can kind of do whatever we want and God will bless it because he knows our hearts, right? Which the Bible says are desperately wicked and that we can't even know how wicked we are. But he, he, he knows our hearts. And so we can, it's cool if we just do like a 15 minute TED talk about God and his love or something like that, or how to be a better dad and, and uh, sing for 45 minute songs about uh, how awesome I am because God loves me. And then, and then you wonder why the judgment of God comes on that church. It's because they insisted on their own way because they're a stumbling block to God because when the Holy Spirit is trying to move, he can't get over all of the, all of the stuff that's been brought into the church. It's like he's tripping on it almost. We don't want to be that kind of church. God's glory and power increases in our lives as we consider his purposes with our living rooms, with our refrigerators, with our closing closet, clothing closets, and our bank accounts. You ever think about that? I want more power uh, from God in my life. How can I use my fr- refrigerator to glorify God? What about the clothes in my closet? Uh, how can I use my bank account to glorify God? How can I use my living room to glorify God? We don't think about those kind of things. We think it has to be something here. Ministry doesn't happen here. Worship happens here. Ministry happens out there. God's glory and power also increases in our lives when we consider our health challenges, our physical disadvantages, our griefs, and our tears. How is God glorified when I cry? How is he glorified when when I'm grieving over something horrible that's happened in my life or to someone that I love? When I have physical disadvantages and I can't do things that other, other people do, how is God glorified in that? How is he glorified in the health challenges that I have where I'm not able to do things that other people are doing? Can God receive glory in that? Yes. So in conclusion, a few questions I I, I want you to consider today in light of this. The first question that we all have to answer is, are you willing to follow Christ in his suffering today? You have to answer that question. You cannot come to him on your own terms. I'm willing to follow Christ as long as I get to keep my house and my job and my family, and, the, and my savings account, and uh, all the cool stuff that I have, or, or my relationships and my friends, and you put all these conditions on enough, yeah, I'll come and I'll follow Jesus as long as I can kind of keep everything the way that I want. It's not how it works. You have to come to him and say, I will follow you even if it requires me going to be killed. All the martyrs had to do for Rome is offer some incense to Caesar. They even told him, you don't even have to believe it. You don't even have to believe it. You just take the incense, you throw it in the fire, say, Hail Caesar, and walk away. And you can deny it, you can do whatever. All we want you to do is just go through the motions of doing it. And they said, no, I'd rather die than say, Hail Caesar. They said, you can kill me and my whole family right now, and I will never say, Hail Caesar is Lord. I will only say Christ is Lord. And people died in the thousands for that confession because they were willing to follow Christ in his suffering. If Jesus died on the cross for me, I don't want him to have a weak explanation to God on my behalf and say, well, I didn't really mean it. I don't want him to say that. I want him to say, no, I'm committed all the way to the grave for Ben. I know that that's what he did for me. You have to ask yourself this today. Is your attitude and your decision-making showing that you believe that God wants better for you than you want for yourself? So many times the decisions that we make, we we don't even think about, what if this thing that happened in my life is good for me? What if God wants better for me than I want for myself? We have to ask ourselves that. And then lastly, as we prepare to come to the Lord's table in just a moment, uh, what are you going to yield to him today so that the weight of his glory will increase in your life? This is practical. There's something that you can do today 
probably even before you leave this room today, that will increase the weight of God's glory in your life, something that you will yield to him, that you will give to him, and let that go. And you need to consider what that is. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in the Spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This was his path to glory. Father, I pray this morning that as we consider these things, that, Lord, you would do a work in our hearts of what we need to yield to you today. Father, forgive us where we have tried to do things our own way, where we've tried to make decisions because we thought that we knew better than you did for our lives. Forgive us where we have uh, used our suffering the wrong way, and instead of letting you make it a blessing in our lives, that we've turned it into a curse. Uh, Lord, forgive us where we have neglected to trust you as though you are the king of the universe and you see us and you see our pains and our difficulties and our challenges and you love us. Forgive us, Lord, where, where we don't do as Christ did, that, uh, that he looked ahead beyond the cross and that, that gave him the endurance that he needed, Lord, and that we look at, at the cross of suffering that we bear in this life and we forget the glory that you have promised and the resurrection that you have promised to us apart from suffering. So help us, Lord, to embrace the suffering that's in our lives, to submit to it, to submit to you in it, to give you glory in it, and let none of it be wasted in the same way that it wasn't wasted for Christ or the apostles or those in the church in history, Lord, for our brothers and sisters overseas right now who will give up their lives even today in order to follow you, Lord. Uh, forgive us where we have fallen short of our obedience to you. In Christ's name, amen.